You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. All right, let's uh, bring it back in. We're going to get started here this morning. Welcome to Missio. My name's Chris Hamilton. I'm one of the elders here, uh, and I am preaching this morning on our last Sunday before we take a big, long break. Um, and yeah, I just have the, the joy of going through Mark 8 with you guys. Um, my wife has already told me that I should be brief, which I think is ironic because she got up here and said, I don't know how long this is going to take about that last slide. So I feel like I'm not being treated fairly. But uh, my, uh, my timeline has already been given to me, so I'll keep it, keep it tight. But uh, let's pray together, and uh, we'll jump in. Father, uh, we do love you. Um, we do thank you for this time and space in which we get to uh, be intentional with, with one another, with you, uh, to be reminded of what story we're a part of, what role we have to play, uh, of your kindness and love toward us in Christ, uh, who did indeed pay it all, um, that we might be made whole. Um, so I pray that you would grip our hearts in this moment by your word, um, by your will, that we, our commitments might be deepened uh, and strengthened to live uh, according uh, to your ways, that you might be honored and glorified, that we might be uh, true witnesses to our neighbors, um, and that uh, we might know what it is to, to really live uh, as, as indeed Christ has uh, patterned for us. So would you teach us in this time, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you want to turn to Mark 8, I'm going to start in verse 27. We'll work through verse uh, 37. Um, I'm going to read the passage. Uh, and before we do it, just I may be making a note that at the end of the chapter is the way of the cross, something maybe that we're super familiar with. But my hope today is that it's not something where we can just say, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's great. Uh, but there is really an opportunity to be gripped by Jesus' vision for what it looks like to follow him. So as we read and think through that today, just, yeah, hopefully there's some freshness that comes through for you, even if you've heard it a lot. Maybe there's a, a different angle that we can explore, or perhaps it's just being more honest with ourselves about our, uh, uh, I guess, faithfulness in this call that we've been given by Jesus to follow him. So let's read together, uh, and then we'll talk through it, so. Mark 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that at that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke, spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. 
and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of God. Jesus begins, uh, in this passage, uh, Jesus begins with the question, who do they say that I am? Uh, and the, the disciples, a uh, number of the apostles, they, their answer reflects what was common among popular opinion at the time. So if you turn back to Mark 6, there's an account of Herod uh, asking a similar question, like, who is this Jesus guy? And the answers given are, some say that he's John the Baptist, others say he's Elijah. Some say that he's like one of the prophets from long ago that was there was an for a prophet like that to come again. Uh, and so these are sort of uh, the local buzz about who this Jesus guy is. Uh, and while there's maybe like uh, something to the fact that people are recognizing in general that there's something different about this Jesus, something unique about his figure, they don't actually see him for who he really is. And so Jesus puts the question differently and asks Peter the personal question, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies by saying, you are the Messiah. And Jesus affirms that this is, uh, this is the true understanding of his person, of who he is. You are correct in essentially, by essentially telling him not to tell anyone about him. Which sounds awkward, but there's this whole thing in the, the Gospel of Mark where uh, Jesus' identity is concealed from those who are outsiders and not insiders in the kingdom. It's the reason why he tells things in parables often. Not everyone is meant to know what he's saying, but there are some who will be given an understanding. There are some who will be given sight, like Peter, who in this story is able to see Jesus for who he really is. Even though this is, uh, even though Peter's given this wonderful insight and it's like, oh, it seems like the disciples are finally catching, maybe catching on a little bit. Uh, this scene, as it continues to unfold, we realize that Peter's understanding is really quite incomplete. Because Jesus then begins to teach them about the mission of this Messiah that they've correctly identified. He says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the teachers, the chief priests. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that he must be killed. Ooh, might get some water. So he's going to be killed and he's going to rise again. And he's talking about this plainly, again, to insiders. So he's giving them, like, full disclosure. This is what's going to happen. This is the plan. This is how God's going to bring about redemption and restoration through me, the Messiah, whom he sent and whom you've rightly identified. That's the plan. Peter hears this plan, and because his understanding and his vision, you might say, is incomplete, he responds by doing something very unexpected, uh, at least for me, I always find it shocking to read when, when Peter's rebuking Jesus and taking him to the side and like, hey, like, this, isn't, this isn't what we're doing. This isn't the plan. This is not what we're about. It's not what you're about. Let me correct you. This is how things are really going to go. Uh, of course, this doesn't go over uh, really well. Jesus counters with a rebuke of his own. Uh, but there's something about the conception of the Messiah that uh, is missing and in incomplete as well, right? There's a sense that Peter is expecting the one whom God would send to be more triumphant and less 
uh, maybe subject uh, to the caprice of others, where it's like in the story that Jesus is telling, he's going to die, be killed wrongfully by uh, these uh, respected leaders in the community, whether that be the elders or the chief priests. Uh, but this is not a vision for, like, God coming in triumph. It's not the vision of one who restores the reading of the Torah and purifies the people. It's not the reading of a military conquest where Jesus expels all the Gentiles that are polluting the land. Like, it's not the Messiah that he's thinking about. And so he's upset about that. And he's confused by that. And so are the rest of the disciples. And that's something I feel like maybe if you've been around Missio long enough, you've probably heard that piece about like uh, the, their conception of a triumphant Messiah. And that's really helpful, uh, but I think there's a, there's a second part of this uh, as well that I want to explore. And we maybe sometimes miss the impact of Jesus announcing that he's going to be a suffering servant Messiah rather than this triumphant Messiah. One, because as Christians, uh, I feel like one of the primary things that we go back to in the Old Testament in terms of like anticipation of this one that's to come to save the world kind of thing is the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, there is the concept of the suffering servant. <clears throat> and so we know all those passages by heart. Uh, I feel like they're all over uh, different mugs or at Christmas time they get inserted into all different kinds of things. It's like they're, they're the passages that you just know uh, by sheer force of hearing them over and over again. And so for us, like, maybe there's, like, that link, that implicit link between, oh, yeah, suffering servant and Isaiah, Messiah, like, that's, that's what it's about. Well, for them, there is no link between those two things. So it's just incorrect to have that assumption. There's no proof that they would have ever associated with the suffering servant with the Messiah. That's part of the freight of, like, the, the confusion of the moment for Peter, is that for him, that, those two don't go together. For, maybe for us as Christians, maybe there's like, we, we sort of wove those things to get together. So it's like, oh yeah, suffer, yeah, that makes sense. It didn't make sense. And a part of the, the, the weight of the moment is not just the Messiah's mission. So like Jesus is going to do this thing, and it's confusing. I didn't think it was going to be like that. But it also has implications for the mission of the Messiah's disciples, so Peter is not happy about the announcement of how Jesus is going to get things done or how God's going to get things done through Jesus. But Peter's equally unhappy about the fact that this has really big implications for how God's going to get things done through Peter moving forward. Like that's, that's where the, the real significance is, I think, even for us. It's, it's good to know that there's maybe a misconception around what the Messiah was going to be like. But the reason why that's so heavy or so meaningful and significant is because it has everything to do with what we will be like as the people who follow that Messiah, what our future will be like. And Peter, in a determination to avoid suffering, begins to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus counters that rebuke with an observation about Peter's blind opposition to God's will. Because Jesus know that, knows that God has determined to redeem and restore through suffering. So Peter was determined to avoid it, but Jesus knows that God's determined to accomplish redemption through it. And so there's that disconnect between the two. And so the first observation that I wanted to make in the text, and Charles, if you wanted to throw that slide up there. 
observation number one is that we must embrace the deep and inseparable connection between our understanding of who Jesus is and who we must become, which is a mouthful. But I think when I was preparing to, Charles had asked me to preach on Mark chapter 8, and the thing that seems like you can't overlook is the way of the cross at the very end. What I realized when I started studying is the way of cross the way of the cross doesn't really make sense aside from the previous context. Because who Jesus is is so deeply connected to who we must become. So when, Peter, when Jesus is asking that question, who do they say I am? And then he asks, who do you say I am? And if we rightly recognize him as the true Messiah, as the suffering servant, then we recognize something about our own calling and who we must become. There's a deep connection between those two things. So I had to back up and include uh, the, the, the scene just before with this interaction between Jesus and Peter. So what's the, what's the content of uh, this way of the cross going to include? So in verse, th- let's read verse 34 and 37 together again, or at least at a cursory level. Then he called to the crowd, <clears throat> to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So reading verse 34 uh, and hearing this sort of change of scene from Peter interacting with Jesus individually to Jesus calling the rest of the disciples and the crowds to him to offer this invitation. Like, if you want to come follow me, this is for everyone. Not just for Peter, but for everyone to hear. If, if you want to come follow me, this is what it's going to look like. There's going to be an invitation to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's not a lot there about like what exactly that's going to look like. Uh, but what is clear is that the call to discipleship is both clear and clearly difficult. Charles, if you want to put number two on there. So, and this observation is probably like, thanks, Chris, that, uh, that was not much of an observation. It didn't take an astute reader to figure that out. But it will be helpful as we link some other things together. But the call to discipleship is clear. This is what you got to do. This is what it's going to look like. And it's also clearly difficult. I want you guys to turn in groups of, you know, three, four, five, uh, whatever the right number is, and discuss. So Jesus talks about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. But what exactly does that look like? Uh, What are the difficulties of living that out, maybe in the day-to-day? And I'd like to hear maybe just a few answers as to what what is... uh, put flesh on the, the bones of that skeleton of what Jesus has offered as a call to discipleship. So if you guys want to turn in groups and chat. those are all helpful. I, uh, 
yeah, it's, it's such a difficult, unnatural thing to do. Uh, and then we're not given all the details of how exactly to do it, which is part of the beauty of the New Testament, is that there's a lot of, uh, uh, of figuring out, discerning, uh, learning how to live in light of uh, what we do know, but applying that in very concrete and particular ways where we're not given exactly uh, how things should look. Uh, but in this call to discipleship, there's certainly uh, this reality that uh, following Jesus is not self-determined, but God-determined. Like, what we're doing is uh, not what we're deciding to do, but what God has decided. This is true of Jesus himself, and this is part of where Jesus succeeds where Adam had failed. Uh, Adam and Eve decide of their own accord that they're going to make this decision to eat of this tree and uh, explore this thing that they felt like God had uh, perhaps uh, kept from them. And in this self-determination, uh, that's sort of then perpetuated in all of us where uh, there's a constant choice that we have on whether or not we're going to decide that thing for ourselves, what, how we are going to act or how we're going to live in this moment, or if we're going to uh, indeed embrace and obey the will of God. And Jesus succeeds where Adam failed in, in the temptation story with Satan. Uh, Jesus, his food uh, is to do the will of the Father, but he uh, isn't not sustained by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's uh, dependent and living on this uh, reality that God is determining things for him, and he's uh, seeking, set about to do the will of God. And this is what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus. And there's not an aversion to suffering, and this is very different from the world, but an embrace of suffering, specifically for the sake of others, not suffering for suffering's sake, because the image or the symbol for discipleship is the cross, which is not just like image for random suffering. It's like Jesus on purpose embraces this brutal death on this terrible torture, torture instrument of the Roman Empire for the sake of redeeming a people, for someone else's good. There's, there's a conversation to be had about other kinds of suffering that I, I, I suppose happen in the world that are not always at least clearly purposeful. But in this moment, in this call, when we're thinking about this call of discipleship, it's to embrace suffering for the sake of others. So always attaching that phrase to the end, like this is not arbitrary. I'm not seeking to just have hard things to have hard things. But I am will willing and ready to do the hard thing to embrace that suffering for the sake of someone else, for the sake of others. And all of it gets summarized in this symbol, which for them would have been very perplexing uh, and like odd choice because it would have been the symbol of torture, it would have been a symbol of death, of subjugation, and of loss, like defeat. But all that gets turned upside down in the person and work of Jesus. And this call to discipleship is, is in a lot of ways a, an upside down kind of call. It's a call to live by dying. And that doesn't make sense, at least not on the surface. It only makes sense in and through Jesus. Uh, it's a call that is clear, but also clearly difficult. And the question would be, like, why would you embrace, then, this way of the cross? And that, those last couple of verses are just sort of the justification or the reasons, like, Jesus is giving for, like, why you would do this really hard thing. Why would you choose to follow me? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
No, for Mark's community, to enlist as a follower of Jesus might actually literally mean to give up your life. So that takes on a little different context. I was studying a bit in the morning at Extreme Bean, and I was thinking about this, and it, it's like you feel the, like the alienness of that or the distance from that because I'm like sipping on my $5 coffee on my Mac computer, typing and like looking across the street at Taco Bell, and they're thinking about if I follow Jesus, like I too might die. And it's like, oh, this is very different, like. I just feel out of place, and it can feel almost like uh, hard to be, how do, how do I engage with this te- text in a real way? Because I feel like it's like almost not real like me engaging with it, but I think there actually is an opportunity for us. Now, the irony and the, the logic that Jesus uses for why you would choose to follow him is that uh, those who are going to save their lives or try to save them will lose it, but whoever loses their life for Jesus will save it. So you could ignore Jesus, potentially gain the whole world, and still lose your life. And life in this passage is a lot more than just physical existence. It's not just the breath that you breathe. It's not just those moments that constitute the space between when you were born and when you die. Life is our whole person. It's the core of who we are, and it's like our very being itself. So the stakes are a lot higher than just those moments between birth and death. And the stakes are a lot higher than just the breath that you inhale into your lungs. It's your very being. It's your humanity. I, what I want to say, to be clear, is I don't think Mark is divorcing, because so, we might read this and think there's like a, a separation that's happening between your physical life and your soul. Because Jesus is talking about, oh, you could gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. And sometimes maybe there, the implication there is like, oh, I see the reason why you would do this is because spiritual things are more important than physical things. But I don't think Mark nor Jesus are interested in that sort of thing. They're interested in our humanity, the, our very being, that core part, that life, that understanding of what uh, life actually is. So if I was to say that maybe in a slightly different way, it would be to say that you can actually be alive without being alive. You can be a human being who's so alienated from your humanness that you're subhuman, that you're not actually fully experiencing life. And so this claim in Mark 8, the logic of Jesus for why you would follow him, even though it's so difficult, is that the only way to be fully human and fully, is al- fully alive Excuse me, is through suffering for the sake of others. That's the only way. And that's why if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will actually save it because your humanity will be restored, redeemed, and through that. Obviously, it's redeemed and restored through that act of Jesus, that saving act of Jesus in his death. There's a sense in which that does that in us, but there's uh, this additional layer in the sense that, God, that Jesus is calling us to follow him that we might take up our humanity by following this, this God-man who is the only one who's been fully human. He, he actually lived that out. And so there's this invitation to follow him, and that invitation includes suffering for the sake of others. And the question would be like, what could you give in exchange for your soul for, maybe you could say it a different way, for your humanity? So not separating that spiritual from the physical, but what about your humanity? What 
Is there anything that you could gain that would be worth giving up your very being? For Jesus, for Mark, the answer is no. There's no amount of comfort, success, power, money, or anything else that would be worth forfeiting your humanity. So by a third observation, Charles, if you want to flip that up there, is that the stakes are high and the motivation is deep. To truly live, one must be willing to die like Jesus. I didn't realize it when I wrote it, but I think that might have a little bit of a rhyme, which is uh, kind of cool. It's a, an accidental, I don't have any skills of that sort. But what I want to draw attention to in this statement is the very last phrase. So the stakes are high. It's, it's your very humanity that's on the line. The motivation's deep. Like you have the opportunity to truly live. And while this, the spiritual and the physical aren't separate, there is a sense in that which like the temporal and the eternal are separate. So when we opened up our service and the call to worship, uh, there was a sense in which like this moment is meaningful because our friendships and the things that we do, the songs that we sing, uh, our experience of God, like uh, there's a sense in which this temporary moment is connected to the eternal. I can't remember all the words offhand, but you should like, let's tune in a little bit next time. There's a sense in which even those conversations that we have in which we get to encourage one another in Christ are connected to this eternal thing. So we're not separating spiritual and physical, but we are identifying that there's something more than just the moments between being born and dying. And so the motivation is deep, and that we are recognizing that to truly live, one must be willing to die, and that last phrase, like Jesus. This is what Peter was so upset about. But this is the inevitable conclusion. If we want to really live, then we must be willing to die like our Savior, who has set the pattern for us. Uh, and this is the, uh, I think the other warning that comes through for us where the text and the story uh, becomes a little more approximate to us where I felt distant because I was having all those experiences of the 21st century as a consumer and I was looking out at my world and it's not all bad, but I can feel very distant from what they're experiencing because I don't have to rest losing my life and you probably don't either. Like those who would have been the original recipients of this letter, that's like a real thing for them. And yet, we do wrestle with losing our lives. That's the point of the logic. We may be inclined to amuse ourselves to death, work ourselves to death, drug ourselves to death, numb ourselves to death, or some combination of those and others. All of those things robbing us of our humanity along the way until there's hardly anything left. And that is actually a tool, an instrument of the enemy. And that is actually something that we are very subject to that there is that constant temptation to numb, to work all the time so that we don't have to think about something else, to find some way to disengage, to go around rather than go through. Like the children's book, Going on a Bear Hunt, where you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you gotta go through it. And that's the call to discipleship with Jesus, that's what he's patterned, that's, how he, that's the way to uh, to life, <laughs> to the fullness of your humanity, is that you've got to go through it. It's in the symbol of the cross. You've got to embrace the suffering instead of trying to go around it, over it, under it, or some other way. 
but we're often inclined uh, to give in to those temptations, to go uh, following a path that's other than Jesus. Uh, there seem to be two paths. One, path, one path tries to preserve your life by saving it, and one path invites you to save your life by losing it. And that path is the path to Jerusalem, the path that Jesus took. And in First Peter, and Peter was the source behind Mark's gospel, so this is kind of cool. So in First Peter 2.21, Peter the apostle says, and this is King James Version because I memorized it a long time ago, so I apologize for the ancient language, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So it says, for even hereunto were ye called, or you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So there's a, there's a path that's been uh, set up, there's a trail that's been blazed, there's the footsteps of Jesus himself as one who has entered into this uh, journey to Jerusalem, who has traveled this road in which you embrace suffering for the sake of others so that you might truly live. And that's the invitation that he offers to the crowd that day and to us this morning. It's an upside down kind of calling. And it doesn't appear to make sense. It may serve us well if we were to stand on our heads or if you were to stand on your heads in here or if I was to stand on my head and say it, maybe we'd hear it better because it's not natural, it's not normal, it doesn't sound right. But if we do see it and we encourage others to see the same, we do that so that we might see with the eyes of Peter but not just with the eyes of Peter. If, you're, if you have your Bible open, you can turn to Mark 15. It's verse 37. So we want to see with the eyes of Peter, but we also want to see with the eyes of the centurion at the end of Jesus' life. So it says, <clears throat> sorry, I'm at 14. The air blew. 35, sorry, 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So we can only know Jesus. The only way we can know him is when we see him in light of the cross, like the centurion. We, he gets it. He sees it. He recognizes Jesus for who he really is because he sees Jesus take his last breath on the cross. And that's the center of what God was doing in Jesus, that's the center of the gospel of Mark, that this man is the son of God. And we can only know who we are and who we're to become when our understanding of discipleship is transformed by our crucified king. This is the invitation today, that even though the call is difficult, it is certainly clear, and there is one who has patterned it for us, who's invited us to follow him. So let's pray together. Uh, send a representative to let the kids know. Perfect. And we'll enjoy communion. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time, for this space. Thank you for a reminder that uh, you are inviting us into an upside-down kind of kingdom. But you've proven its, its validity. You've proven its... Uh, it's worth, um, and, and through the, the death and resurrection of your son, that he would be, be the first to defeat death, uh, and that his, his victory would be ours, that we might walk in a newness of life 
as those who do not seek to preserve our own lives for our own sake, but who lay them down as he has for the sake of others, that we might truly live. As we come to your table, I just pray that you would uh, meet with us, uh, that we would encounter you here, that our hearts would be transformed so that we might see Jesus for who he really is, the suffering servant, our crucified king. It's in his precious name and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Perfect. It's 1 Corinthians 11. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you'll join with me, uh, we will repeat this uh, mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and then we'll come to the table together. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Come to the table.